This week's episode is brought to you by Audible. Audible is the internet's leading provider of audio entertainment with over 150,000 titles to choose from. When you're done with this episode, please visit audibletrial.com forward slash the renaissance for a free audiobook with your free 30-day trial membership. Today's recommendation is Saving Italy, The Race to Rescue a Nation's Treasures by Robert Edsel. This book highlights the work of the early Monuments Men in Italy during World War II. The Monuments Men was a division of the armed forces made up of artists, historians, professors, and museum curators. Their mission was to protect and preserve art and artifacts of cultural significance in the middle of a war zone, an almost impossible task. This one's a great read. I actually finished it while in Florence last February. And it really helps you to gain some perspective on what might have been lost were it not for the work of these men. You may choose this or another one of their many titles when you visit audibletrial.com forward slash the renaissance for your free download. Hello, and welcome to the Renaissance, Episode 6, Paolo Uccello. When you visit Santa Maria del Fiore, St. Mary of the Flowers, also better known as the Duomo or Florence Cathedral, and you walk down the nave from the altar, you first pass Masaccio's Holy Trinity, which we discussed a few weeks ago. A little further down, you come to a fresco of a man on horseback. It has a bluish-green tint and the appearance of being a life-size equestrian statue. This figure is rendered with an amazing amount of perspective, designed to fool the eye and create a three-dimensional image that jumps out of the space. This is a painting that most people walk by, and they recognize it, but they're not sure from where. They probably wouldn't know the artist's name, but they know they've seen this painting in their history books at some point. When you dig a little deeper, you discover that it's not a painting of a famous Italian, but rather an Englishman, Sir John Hawkwood. Hawkwood was an English mercenary captain, a very famous one, in fact, a member of the English White Company or one of the free companies that traveled through Europe looking for conflicts. He happened to finish his fighting career working for Florence and was made a Florentine citizen. This unusual fresco is a funerary monument for this mercenary captain and was painted by a more unusual artist, Paolo Uccello. Now, that's not a name most people are going to be familiar with, but they've likely seen this painting, and it's one of the standard images used to illustrate this period. Paolo Uccello would have a tremendous impact on the Renaissance for his groundbreaking use of perspective, even if his fanciful paintings did not fully embrace the classical naturalism of the Renaissance like Masaccio or Donatello. Paolo was born in Florence in either 1396 or 1397, there seems to be a little debate on his exact date of birth. And 
Like some of our other artists that we've discussed, there's not much known about his early life. You're probably getting tired of me saying this, but our only source is, once again, Vasari. We have a few legal documents and tax documents, but other than that, we have to rely on Vasari for much of our information about this artist. He was apprenticed to Ghiberti, and he likely assisted Ghiberti on the Gates of Paradise, and definitely on the earlier set of baptistry doors. It was during this time that he probably developed his friendship with Donatello, and this would be a lifelong friendship, despite their obvious differences. While he was painting for the Medicis, he was given the nickname Uccello, which means of the birds. So this artist is Paolo of the birds, and this is because of his fondness for painting birds. Sometime in the 1420s, Paolo left the workshop of Ghiberti, but the exact date was mere speculation. However, he does seem to have remained on good terms with Ghiberti, and there's reason to believe that he was involved with the Gates of Paradise, or at least had detailed knowledge of them. What Paolo is most well known for is his use of perspective. In fact, he obsessed over it. Vasari quotes Paolo's wife, who says that he would stay up all night just trying to work out the problems of perspective, and he would create sketches of great detail. But rather than being a positive, this actually seemed to work to his detriment. He mostly lived like a hermit, locking himself away to solve these problems, sometimes for weeks at a time. And Vasari actually criticizes Paolo for his intense state of perspective because he feels that this restrains his work and restrains a fertile imagination. And as you might imagine, this obsession left him both isolated and often very poor. His friend Donatello would often try to coax him out of his studio, but to no avail. For later generations, however, Paolo did expand upon the ideas of Brunelleschi and Masaccio. He even introduced a new formula on how to place figures and animals in perspective. And this would be what Paolo's most well known for in his greatest contribution was expanding the science behind perspective. Shortly after his apprenticeship with Ghiberti, he was awarded a commission to paint a fresco for San Miniato, which lies on the hills overlooking Florence. The fresco would be of the early church fathers and was painted primarily in terra verde, which is an earth green commonly used during the Renaissance. At some point during the process, he began using vivid color for the fresco, and he would paint the fields blue or cities red, creating a very unusual fresco. It's believed that he began painting in these unnatural colors, or these very bright colors, as a protest over his working conditions at the monastery. Apparently, the abbot refused to feed Paolo anything but cheese, bread, and cheese soup. And rather than complain to his patron, he took a passive-aggressive route and sabotaged his own work by using such gaudy colors. Finally, he resorted to just not showing up for work, and he would disappear for long stretches of time. The abbot would send for him, but he would hide, or he would pretend not to be at home. If he would see any of the monks on the street, he would run, and he would hide from them. Finally, a young monk, one who was younger than Paolo and more curious about the situation, actually caught him on the street, and he asked him why he had not finished the piece. And quoting Vasari, Paolo says, You have murdered me in a manner that I not only fly from you, but cannot show myself near any carpenter's shop or pass by one. All because of your abbot, who, what with pies and with soups always made of cheese, has crammed so much cheese into me that I am in terror, lest being nothing but cheese, they may use me for making glue. And if it were to go on any longer, I would probably be no more Paolo 
but cheese. Well, you can imagine the monk's response. You're probably laughing as you're hearing this, and it's exactly what the monk did. In fact, the monk roared with laughter and walks away from Paolo, heading back to the monastery to tell the abbot everything that just transpired. Upon hearing this, the abbot coaxes Paolo back to work with a promise of a more healthy and, well, less cheese-laden diet. This comical story illustrates the eccentricity of Paolo, and we see it very early on. He almost reminds me of some character like Monk, if you're familiar with that television show. Other artists probably would have dealt with this more directly. I'm sure Donatello would have spoken up and not hidden as Paolo did or taken a passive-aggressive route. Though he did destroy one of his own pieces, but not because of an excessive amount of cheese. Already we see a tendency of Paolo to hide from his problems and withdraw from the world. Sometime around 1425, he travels to Venice. We're told he completes work on the facade of St. Mark's Cathedral. However, none of this work exists today. On his return from Venice, there are stories that Paolo met his friend Donatello in Rome in order to study ancient Roman art. But these are unsubstantiated, so it's hard to really put a definite date on any of that. Sometime while he was in Rome, he was contacted by ambassadors from Florence who inquired about his reliability as an artist. This is likely how the commission for the funerary monument of Sir John Hawkwood came about, and he was officially commissioned in 1436. I find the Hawkwood monument extremely fascinating. You walk into one of the most important cathedrals of Italy, and here's a memorial to an Englishman. Hawkwood was a condottiere, and I apologize if I'm not pronouncing that correctly, and in Florence he was known as Giovanni Acuto. This interesting character didn't start out as a mercenary. He began his fighting career with Richard II during the Hundred Years' War fighting the French. You can find a really great account of this period with some mention of Hawkwood in Barbara Tuckman's book A Distant Mirror. It's after this fighting that Hawkwood joins the infamous White Company and makes his way to Italy. The White Company is one of the English free companies that rove Europe fighting for whoever has the most money. They have quite a reputation, and Conan Doyle, the author of Sherlock Holmes, actually writes a fiction based on the exploits of the White Company. Ironically, he considers this his greatest work, even over Sherlock Holmes, though few have read it today. When free companies like the White Company were not employed fighting for a particular city, they would raid and pillage the countryside, since their only way of gaining income was through warfare. Now, Machiavelli would write less glowingly than Doyle of men like Hawkwood. He considered them dangerous and a threat to the stability of Italy, which is understandable since the mercenary companies were constantly at war. Despite this, he does base his model military captain in The Prince on Hawkwood. And Machiavelli admired Hawkwood's use of deception on the battlefield, which he was a master of, and learned quite well fighting the French during the Hundred Years' War. Hawkwood would employ techniques using some of his army as bait, drawing the enemy in, and then crushing them once they were surrounded. Eventually, Hawkwood would be so successful, he would be placed in charge of much of Florence's military, And, rather than money, he preferred land. Hawkwood was often paid in land, which he owned quite a bit of around the city. He could gain income from the land through crops, as well as through sales of the land. Often these land grants were in very strategic positions where he would place his troops. 
Eventually, he would be made a citizen of Florence for his years of devoted service. Hawkwood intended to return to England, but he died before he had the chance in 1396, and he was buried inside of Florence Cathedral. The fresco itself is quite striking, and it catches one's eye from across the cathedral. I remember walking down the nave of Florence Cathedral back in February, and I was struck by this green horseman on the wall. At the moment, I couldn't even remember the artist's name, but I knew the image, and I was drawn to it like a moth to a flame. It has this effect on a lot of people, and it's why it's one of the most popular images from the early Renaissance. It's probably Paolo Uccello's most famous work, and it's one all the tourists recognize, though they may not be sure why or who the artist was, and it shows up in all of your textbooks on Renaissance art. The painting depicts the sarcophagus of Hawkwood, and is topped with a giant funerary statue of the captain in his armor and on horseback. It's painted in a monochromatic color scheme, terra verde, which imitates the color of bronze or marble. This earth green was actually a very common color during the Renaissance. Most often it's used as an underpainting during the High Renaissance. Also with the statue, we can see Paolo Uccello's obsession with perspective. All the lines are carefully placed to create the illusion of depth. And the statue seems to jump off the wall. Not only that, it towers above the viewer. It's carefully placed in such a way that you're looking up at the horseman. Now, there's some dispute on the interpretation of this piece, particularly since Hawkwood was such a controversial figure at the time. Many Florentines acknowledge the debt they owe to Hawkwood for protecting the city. However, like Machiavelli, they did not like that Florence's independence depended on these companies of mercenaries who were likely as not to desert them in the middle of a battle for a higher-paying client. So rather than honoring Hawkwood as a great leader, some have interpreted this piece as showing Hawkwood inspecting his troops, loyal to the leaders of Florence, rather than being a strong, independent commander in his own right. Sometime while working on this piece, he also painted the face of the clock that is above the principal door of the cathedral. In this clock, you see, again... Paolo's obsession with perspective as well as geometry. And I forgot to mention earlier that he was also a mathematician. There's an image of this clock face on the website with the attachment for this podcast as well. Next, we're going to move on to the Battle of San Romano. This depicts a battle between Florence and Siena that took place just 30 miles outside of the city. Both sides claim it as a victory, but it's important symbolically for Florentine independence. The battle itself lasted for six or seven hours and included several thousand cavalry. It mainly consisted of several heavy cavalry charges. Again, the Florentines see this as a huge victory for their forces. This explains why Paolo Cello was commissioned to paint such a large triptych of this event. The paintings themselves are on wood panels painted in egg tempera, which would be the common medium other than fresco until oil painting came to prominence in the 16th century. Now, the paintings of San Romano are actually three paintings. We believe they were originally designed to be a triptych, but because they've been split up between the Louvre and the Uffizi, we don't really know the proper order. Most likely, they depict different scenes of the battle, perhaps even different times of day. But this is where you can see Paolo's extreme use of foreshortening with the figures, again, showing his mastery of perspective. Now, foreshortening... We've sort of touched on a little bit, but the use of it we really owe to Paolo Uccello. 
And foreshortening is a technique where you place figures in perspective so that it recedes or protrudes out of the flat surface, making it seem more three-dimensional. This is not unlike what you do with a building. However, it had never been used in such a way with figures prior to Paolo Uccello. In the paintings for the Battle of San Romano, you see how he puts everything in perspective. The horses, the lances, all the figures. They all lead the viewer's eye. This guy was just a master draftsman, and he would spend hours sketching these things out, working out different geometrical shapes and how to fit everything into perspective. However, despite all of this, you still see Gothic elements in his work. And the horses and the men don't seem very natural. They almost look like chess pieces or toy soldiers. And Paolo was unable to completely break with the Gothic style. This effect of these toy soldiers or chess pieces creates an entirely unnatural or artificial painting. I think this is where we can see what Vasari is describing when he says that Paolo's obsession with perspective detracts from his handling of other elements, and that he would have been better off learning to draw horses properly and learning human anatomy than obsessing over perspective. The last work we're going to look at is Paolo Uccello's version of St. George and the Dragon. This one's painted in 1470, and I refer to this as his surrealist phase. You see very strong Gothic elements in the handling, but you also see this obsessive use of perspective. Everything is in perspective. The trees, the bushes, the rocks. Everything almost lines up in geometric patterns. It's a very strange design, and it shows St. George on this horse jumping out of the canvas. Mind you, it's still a toy horse, like we saw in the Battle of San Romano, but it's jumping out of the canvas, and he's slaying this dragon with his lance. There's almost dreamlike quality to it. The damsel in distress stares on without emotion, literally inches from the dragon's head. I don't know, I find this one very strange, and yet it's extremely interesting. And this work would have later influence on 20th century artists, including some of the surrealists. Paolo Uccello would die a broken and forgotten man at the age of 78. Despite this, his work in perspective would have a tremendous influence on artists like Piero della Francesco, Leonardo da Vinci, and Albrecht Dürer during the Renaissance. And we would see it come up again during the 20th century as artists look back to this sort of this Gothic Renaissance hybrid style of Paolo Uccello's and incorporate elements into their own work. I think it's safe to say that Paolo Uccello broke new ground with his explorations in perspective, and he laid the groundwork for future artists and mathematicians like Leonardo da Vinci. So even though he died relatively unknown in his own time, within a short while, his achievements were recognized by the greats of Renaissance art and science. If you're enjoying this podcast and would like to support the show, there are a couple ways to do this. Please visit our sponsors through our sponsor links on the renaissancepodcast.com. Of course, you may also support the show by using Audible. You may click on the Audible link on the website or visit audibletrial.com forward slash the renaissance. And when you do, you will be eligible for a free audio download. If you prefer, you may also make a donation through the link on the website. No amount is too small and all is appreciated. Just click the donate button to make a secure donation through PayPal. Also, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes so that you may receive the latest updates as episodes are posted. Last week, I posted an announcement that I was taking questions on any of the art topics we discussed previously. 
So be sure to send those in to me and I will collect them all. And sometime in October, I hope to have a question and answer episode. Join us next week as we explore the art of Fra Angelico, the one artist of the Renaissance who really is a saint.